Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying a prayer by St. Ambrose for those whom we love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we can hope for others nothing better than the happiness we desire for ourselves. Therefore, I pray you, do not separate me after death from those I tenderly loved on earth. Grant that where I am, they may be with me and that I may enjoy their presence in heaven after being so often deprived of it on earth. Lord God, I ask you to receive your beloved children immediately into your life-giving heart. After this brief life on earth, give them eternal happiness. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of the best interviews of days gone by. Hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Ken Craycraft from Craycraft Law. He's our legal and political correspondent. We also tap him because... There's so much overlap in all this for questions related to Catholic social teaching. Ken, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Good to be with you. So today we're talking about the environment. Now, um, I was trying to think of a way, a way to dive into this properly because there's just so much to discuss. But I think one way to, to really set the stage for this is that when you and I look out our window or when we get out of our car and go into the woods, as Catholics... We, we think of these things fundamentally differently. So uh, a, a nature documentary might just say that. Well, let's explore nature. Out there is nature. Whereas we as Catholics, we have to think of that as creation. And that sets everything kind of in a different light. Oh, absolutely it does, Matt. When we think of uh, environmental concerns, we think of it in terms of the basic understanding of human dignity, and that creation is for the good of the human person. And oftentimes we either, the way that you're describing it, creation is looked at as disconnected from the human person, or in many in sort of secular environmental ethics, nature is the enemy of the human person, which means that either the human person is at war with nature, or that nature is something uh, that has to be overcome by the human person. Those are faulty ways of thinking about man's relationship to the environment and man's relationship to natural resources. And the reason for that is that those are faulty ways of looking at man's relationship to man. You know, the section on the environment in the Catechism comes under the uh, Seventh Commandment, and that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So environmental concerns begins with human dignity, as well as the other principles of Catholic social doctrine, but it begins with an understanding that all creation is for the purpose of the good of the human person. Now, that has a very strong mandate for us to conserve the environment and to be co-creators with God, but it's based upon an understanding that uh, 
creation and the human person cooperate in one uh, unity rather than as antagonists toward one another. You know, I was thinking as we were preparing for this of the old John Prine song, Paradise, where he's saying, you know, Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where Paradise lay? I'm sorry, my son, you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. And we can look and we can say, well, mountaintop removal is a bummer because, you know, there used to be these beautiful hills over in West Virginia and Kentucky or whatever, and the efforts, things have been kind of messed up. Right. You know, that it's one thing to say, well, it used to be beautiful, now it's less beautiful, and, you know, we imposed our will on the situation. That's not really, I mean, that's a problem in its own world. The real problem that the church kind of calls us back to over and over again is when environments are affected, when waters are polluted, when uh, soil is tainted, the people who are most affected by this are the poor. That's exactly right. The, the preservation of nature and the environment it, it is not an end itself. Again, it, the end of the preservation of the environment and ecological concerns are rooted in human ecology, and that begins with the un- understanding of the preferential option for the poor. You know, one of the principles of uh, Catholic social doctrine is common good, that ultimately all things are to be ordered toward the common good of all. And closely related to this is the understanding of the universal destination of goods. So when we think about the universal destination of goods, again, we mean all goods, human goods, natural goods, economic goods, ecological goods. And because we think about the environment as rooted in the universal destination of human goods, we think about that principle as the way that we approach our understanding of how we treat the environment for the purpose of lifting up the poor for the purpose of preserving resources, not as an end in themselves, but rather for the purposes of raising up the poor. What Again, what oftentimes secular environmentalists miss is the capacity of human entrepreneurship and human ingenuity to be co-creators with God, to preserve resources, and not just to preserve resources, but to multiply the value of resources so that they inure to the benefit of all. You know, the Peabody, the Peabody Coal Company still exists. I mean, John Prine wrote that song in the 1970s, but it's the Peabody Energy Company now. And it has found, like many companies, it has found ways to uh, uh, reduce uh, environmental, uh, environmental um, uh, damage while also finding ways to uh, increase productivity and the better utilization of resources. And that's what we have to think about when we think about an environmental concern. Not that we're at war with the environment, but that we learn better to utilize resources through entrepreneurship and through the principle of co-creation with God for the benefit of all human persons. And again, we think about the universal destination of goods and the preferential option for the poor as the standards by which we judge how well or how poorly we manage the environment and we manage uh, ecological concerns. Well, and that's a much bigger picture, and, and, and it's a much saner and complete picture of how these things all play together, because, you know, if you were to just watch Bill Nye the Science Guy or any Hollywood uh, person who's, you know, going around with their, you know, global warming tour or or watch any talking head. I mean, on the one side, you could hear people on the left saying, well, we people are the problem. I'm going to, as Miley Cyrus says, we're just not going to have children because we 
we that's our responsibility to the environment is to not bring any more people into it right <laughs> you, you got that side but then you have some on the right who are like oh, what are these listen to these idiots on the left talking about environmental this and that i'm just going to throw my uh, big gulp out the window just to tick these people off that's wrong too yeah and the the principle of man as co-creator is a mandate against waste and against inefficiency it isn't a mandate to take a particular political position, but rather to think about the environment in terms of the human person as co-creator and therefore instituting into the way that we look at our lives, our jobs, our relationships to one another, the overall idea of co-participants with God. And when we think about that, we think about the universal destination of goods doesn't mean that nobody owns anything. It means everybody owns everything, and therefore we have an interest in it. You know, you, you, we talk about the human person. I want to read something from a, an encyclical, a papal encyclical, and I think people will be surprised by uh, what the encyclical is and who, who wrote it. it. It goes this way. Uh, the decisive issue is the overall moral tenor of society. If there's a lack of respect for the right to life and to natural death, if human conception, gestation, and birth are made artificial, if human embryos are sacrificed to research, the conscience of society ends up losing the concept of human ecology and, along with it, that of an environmental ecology. It is contradictory to insist that future generations respect the natural environment when our educational systems <clears throat> and laws do not help them to respect themselves. Now, oftentimes when we think about concern with the environment, we think about Pope Francis and Laudato Si. That's a quote from Caritas in Veritate from Benedict XVI. In other words, the concern with the environment and the concern with ecology begins with the concept of human ecology. And if we artificialize human life, then we also artificialize every aspect of our society, and therefore nature is separated from the good of the human person rather than understood as cooperating with the good of the human person. If nature is separated from the human person, the human person is separated from himself. And we think about the person the same way that we think about other environmental concerns, namely as something simply to be limited. You know, when we think about the uh, human ecology, we also have to think about the creative capacity of persons and individuals. And it's, it's simply, um, it, it simply doesn't uh, get us anywhere to start thinking about fewer people means less stress on the environment. No, that's not the case. People who, whose lives are more integrated into an understanding of the universal destination of goods and the basic uh, dignity of the human person are the answer to ecological concerns, just as they're the, that's the answer to all kinds of societal concerns uh, that, that cause us so much stress and so much um, uh, uh, conflict with one another in the human community. Yeah, I could go on and on about this, but, you know, building on that statement that you made from Pope Benedict in Laudato Si, I think one of the most compelling passages in it that Pope Francis writes is, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but to paraphrase, he says, looking at the breakdown of the family in modern society, how can we not see a connection between that and mistreatment of creation? Because inside a family is the first place you learn to say please and thank you, the first place you learn to care for a community. And if you've broken that then how are you supposed to have a framework for understanding how to care for creation, the common home that we share as the human family? Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly right. if you don't put two and two together there, then it's just this political issue and that political issue and talking heads yelling back and forth a bit, a, a, about the latest report. So 
Great like stuff, Ken. Yep. Ken Craycrafter, for our listeners want to get in touch with you, where do they go? Craycraftlaw.com or athenam.edu for the courses that I teach at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. I'm Matt Swayman. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. EWTN's Religious Catalog has great summer reading for kids. Kiss Me Goodnight is about the innocent love a family has for one another. Real to life and rooted in sacred scripture and sacred tradition, this is a book for the ages everlasting. It's one of many great summer reading suggestions for kids from EWTN Religious Catalog. For more, visit EWTNRC.com today. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Monsignor Charles Pope. You can read his daily blog over at blog.adw.org and connect with him and read more of his writing at monsignorpope.com. Good morning, Monsignor. Good morning. Now, we're going to be reflecting today on a passage from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. And uh, this particular passage, talking about Old Testament saints, it says, These were all commended for their faith. Yet they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Can you explain what's being said here in this passage? Yeah, you know, I think that if we were to move just beyond the Old Testament saints, we would, even into the New Testament times, there's something, we are all one body in Christ, and um, he extends across time, but he also includes all time, and there's something called the treasury of merit that I think is being referred to here that we, you know, we, we, we learn about in the catechism. Um, so, you know, for example, um, somehow, even what I do today affects the whole body of Christ extended across time, the future, but also the past. There's, God has always known whatever good works I would do, um, Whatever sufferings I would endure and offer to him, he's always known that. And that's part of the what we call the treasury of merit. And there are some lines in the catechism that we can talk about, but, you know, let's just see how you, 
you take that particular aspect of the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping you can go into what the catechism has to say, because that is mind-blowing that <laughs> we could affect today the holiness of people who were in heaven even before we were born. Yeah. You know, God lives outside of time. He sees past, present, and future all at once. Everything is just comprehensive to him. If you, you know, if you were to think about it like the center dot at the of a watch, you know, 9, 10, 12, whatever time is out there on the edges, but at the center dot, they're all present, you mm-hmm. know, and that's where God lives. And he's always known you, and he's, he's not just waiting for you to do something tomorrow. He's already in your tomorrow, you know. So let's put it this way. So let's, with that in mind, there's a, a few things that um, we read in the uh, the catechism regarding um, the treasury of merit. The quote, treasury of the church is, a, is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have, have, have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain to the communion with the Father. Now, it goes on to say here, mention the Blessed Virgin Mary of, of particular value, but then it comes to us, and it says here in the Catechism, in 1477, in the treasury of merit, too, are the prayers and the good works of all the saints, whose, who, uh, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord, and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission of the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attain their own salvation and, at the same time, cooperated in the saving of their brothers and sisters in the unity of the mystical body. Wow. So you make the point here um, in in your post, which I really want to encourage folks to read. You say, you know, is it possible then that even in a small way, I contributed to the holiness of someone like your patron, St. Charles Borromeo, or your heroine, St. Catherine of Siena? And the answer is... Yes. Yes. <laughs> in a small way, maybe a drop in the ocean, but, but somehow they were able to draw on this glorious merit of of Christ. Remember, there's only one body, and we're all members of the body, namely Christ. And um, he extends across time, but he's always known. For example, uh, when he was dying on the cross, every suffering that we ever endured was known to him, and, 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 and every sin that we committed was also known to him. And he died for for our sins and for our our grace and our salvation. So with that in mind, as St. Paul says, I make up in my own, you know, flesh or my own body uh, for, for, for the sake of the church, uh, any of the afflictions that are still lacking in Christ. Nothing was lacking in that in the sense of Christ himself. But because it extends across time, I contribute my little sliver to the cross that Christ mm-hmm. endured. And uh, so St. Paul mentions the same idea as well. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it kind of blows our mind a little bit because we have to expand time into past, present, and future all being at once in that moment of the cross. But you start to see that somehow I have a role to play in contributing to the merit or the treasury of merit, Mm. um, which is, uh, you know, which is in Christ Jesus, you know, and and his perfect passion. Small role to play, yeah. Well, it's such an incredible opportunity that we have, and dare I say, a responsibility 
that we have too. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask, you know, how many times do we log on to social media and we see, you know, like let's say on Facebook, a post from somebody from two days ago that said, hey, I'm having surgery today. Can you pray for me? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you just kind of scroll past it. Well, that already happened. I, I shouldn't yeah. pray for it. But I'm guessing yeah. that our prayers can even help then because yeah. the Lord would know then that we would be praying for it in the future. Yeah, he can backload it, so to speak. <laughs> That's the only word I can come up with. You know, he backloads it. He, he's always known that we would pray, and he's already incorporated that into the answer to that prayer. Mm. Yeah. But also important to note, I think, um, before we close out our conversation here, that Jesus is not just sitting around waiting for us to help him save souls. Yes, everything is present to him. He's always known about us before we were ever born. Everything we would ever do, whether negative or positive, he's always known this, and he's factored it into his great and saving power. Mm. So try to avoid the negative stuff and do the positive stuff and rejoice that somehow you can contribute to the church, not just in the present or the future, but even in the past. Always offer up those sufferings, too. Um, If you're interested in checking out the Catechism reference, it's 1476 and 1477. And really encourage you to go check out this blog post at blog.adw.org, which you can find linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Monsignor Charles Pope, love this topic. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. Looking for a taste of summer to start your day? Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee, where you can find a number of special summer blends like banana rum and coconut margarita. And you can earn a commission for the Sunrise Morning Show when you go to sonrisemorningshow.com first and click our link to the Mystic Monk site. While at our site, be sure to check out our online store and pick up a Sunrise Morning Show travel mug to take on your summer road trip. Get your mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Scheer, and these are Biblical Impressions. There are people in the Bible whose names we never learn, but their lives are perfect examples of faith. This is true for a brave woman whose story is preserved in the accounts about the great prophet Elisha. The woman had a husband who had been a prophet too. When he died, she faced terrible difficulties. Eventually, things got so bad, she was in danger of losing her children to slavery in order to pay off the great debts she incurred. That is when she went to Elisha for help. He told her to trust that God would provide for her. She had to demonstrate her trust in God by gathering as many empty jars as she could from the town where she lived. From the few drops of oil left in her house, God produced enough oil to take care of her debts and provide her with money for years to come. She believed that God could fill the emptiness in her life. Do we? For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio. 
with the Crossroads Initiative. You can connect with him, check out his resources, get information about the pilgrimages he leads at dritaly.com. He's also a professor at Catholic Distance University. Good morning, Doc. Good morning, Anna. So August 14th is the Feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe, known as the Saint of Auschwitz. Tell us what stands out to you about the impressive ministry that he had as a Franciscan friar in those many years before he became a prisoner at Auschwitz. Well, here we are talking on Catholic radio, and uh, we have Catholic radio networks across the country, and it's such a, been an incredible um form of evangelization so important and the thing about maximilian colby we're talking now back in the 1920s and 30s he realized how important media was and he had a burning desire to evangelize uh to fight errors of his time to share the good news of jesus to bring devotion to the immaculate heart of mary for whom he had such a special devotion um so he started with coming up with a magazine, a weekly magazine that start, he started to print. He had no money. You know, he had to get printing presses and all sorts of things. Um, and then graduated to a daily newspaper. And before the Nazis shut it down, it, that newspaper was getting out to 160,000 every day. And on weekends, 250,000 people. That's an incredible thing for a, yeah. you know, for a nonprofit organization to, do, to to pull off, you know. And uh, it, it's just uh, I I love his zeal for the truth to share the truth with everybody. So yeah, patron saint of Catholic evangelization through media in, in a certain way, for sure. And he took Catholic media not just to Poland but to Japan. Yeah, you know the amazing thing about him <clears throat> is that. He, of course, wanted to disciple others. He wanted to lead others into the work of evangelization and into a life of deeper holiness. So he was a seminary professor for a while. And then to support the magazine that he had started, he needed more manpower. And uh, he ended up founding a monastery outside of Warsaw. And if anyone here is Polish, please forgive me if I butcher the name of this place, <laughs> Nipo Kolono. <laughs> it, it's a... And it's, but it's more than a monastery. It became a small city. He had a bunch of friars living in small, informal uh, dwellings, you know, simple dwellings living in poverty. But the numbers grew and grew and grew to, you know, we're talking not just hundreds, but over a thousand. I mean, to give you an idea of how big this city, this monastic city was that was is the center of apostolic activity and, and prayer and holiness during the horrible time of the war, early in the war, before the Nazis shut the place down. You know, the Nazis took over Poland in September of 1939. Maximilian Kolbe wasn't taken prisoner until 1941. So they had a little time before this horrible um, shutdown happened. And in that time, they hid over 2,000 Jewish people inside of this monastery. So you wow. can just get an idea of how big this monastic town was. But that still wasn't enough for Colby. Uh, before the war, he had a burning desire to start a monastery in the east. Obviously, there's not, there's not a lot of Catholics in places like China and Japan. He couldn't get into China, so he went to Japan. And the largest Catholic population there was in Nagasaki. So he wanted to form, uh, found a monastery there, 
and uh, people gave, showed him a piece of property right outside the city at the foot of a mountain. They were facing the city. Um, and uh, Maximilian Colby said, no, I just don't feel right about this place. I think we should have it on the other side of this mountain. And um, a lot of people, you know, said that's just not an auspicious place to have it, blah, blah, blah. He insisted. So they built the monastery there. And the mountain being between the monastery and the city saved the monastery from the horror of the atomic bomb blast in 1945. So that monastery survived um, through his prophetic inspiration. Just kind of amazing situation. And he came back in the 1930s to Poland after founding that monastery. And that's where the, we pick up the story of him being uh, taken by the Nazis. And I think there's one other thing I want to mention, Anna. He could have, his dad was German. He was a German ethnic, uh, mother was Polish. And the Germans gave the Poles who were German the status of Germans, most, most favored status. You know, they were mm. they were pretty much into racial cleansing. They were racist, right? So if you were an ethnic German in Poland, you could have the full benefits of being a German citizen. And all you needed to do was to sign a piece of paper pledging your loyalty to the Reich and all this kind of stuff. And he and Colby wouldn't do it. He, he just would not do that. He would not separate himself from his Polish brothers and sisters and put himself in a privileged, protected position. So that's a prelude to him being arrested. He could have avoided even being arrested. Just incredible. Amazing. Can you tell us about his time in Auschwitz? Yeah, you know, this is um, the... the there's a lot of things we know and a lot of things we don't know for sure. Here's what we know. Uh, he and many, you know, Auschwitz was a place, obviously, our poor Jewish friends were horribly victimized in a very special way by the Nazis. But we need to understand that they thought that Slavic people were also subhuman. And and so Poles were hated, and especially the Pole, the Polish intelligentsia. They were in, they, they were dangerous because they could raise up and and animate and, and and revive the Polish people's nationalism, the sense of a nation and a heritage and a destiny. So they wanted to decapitate Polish society. So that's why they took so many priests and professors and and people like that, and they sent them to places like Auschwitz. So here he is in Auschwitz with many other Polish Catholics as well as Jews, and um, the. Somebody escaped. Uh, somebody successfully got out of the camp, and the the deputy uh, commandant of the camp thought that he he needed to really strike the fear um, into these guys. And so, to deter any other escapes, he said, "I'm, I'm going to take ten men who are going to be starved to death in retribution for this guy leaving." And so if any of you want to leave, just know you're going to be responsible for the death of 10 other people. So, uh, you know, people were called out randomly. One man, he's a Polish Catholic man. When he was selected, he cried out uh, uh, just out of fear for his children and his wife, not for himself. And Colby stepped forward and said, may I please take that man's place? And it's kind of remarkable you know, usually uh, Nazis would never think of such a thing. They might kill both of them, but not, but not right. let, let another guy go. So it's kind of inexplicable that this commandant didn't, uh, you know, immediately just shoot Colby and, and keep the other guy in line. No, he took Colby in and let the other guy go. And um, 
Now, this is the the amazing thing, and, and this is not something that we can absolutely know for sure. But um, my son, Anthony, is, is uh, one of the leaders of a group called Catholic Creatives, a great mm -hmm. group of millennials who are working um, creatively to proclaim the gospel. And um, he, he, he was commissioned by the Diocese of Dallas to put together a film, um, a short film, you know, that's kind of a new genre these days, dramas that are 20 minutes long instead of two hours long. But anyway, he was commissioned to put this together for uh, special events in the Diocese of Dallas. And it was, it was on Colby's last days in the bunker. And what do we know about those last days? We have some witnesses who heard what was going on inside when they, they were locked in a starvation bunker, Colby together with the other nine men. Um, and uh, we know that they were praying. We know that he was leading them in prayer. We know he was serving to comfort these men and help these men as they prepared for death, you know. Um, my son, in praying over this film before he wrote it, he just really felt an inspiration that Colby's motivation was not just to save that man when he offered himself. It was to die with the other men. It was to be their companion, to be their chaplain, hmm. to guide them and, and instruct them. So anyway, that that's what this film is about. Um, you know, it's drama. We don't know what the real dialogues were, but it kind of shows this, the, the anguish of men who were um, horribly traumatized by this, some who were in despair, some who were uh, Jewish, some who, who were Catholic, you know, and Colby trying to minister to them in the midst of all this. It's pretty a powerful film, and um, it's not easily available out there to the public, but if you go to my website, there's a, a wonderful article by Maximilian Colby on my site. Um, just search Maximilian Colby on the, on the DrItaly.com site, and at the bottom of the article, which is really the words of Colby himself, you'll find a link to this movie. And the movie is called Out of Death, uh, Into Death and Beyond It. So it's really very, very, very powerful. Just prepare. Just give yourself some time to recover after you see it. That's all I would say. <laughs> I, I would imagine so. I mean, a man declared a martyr of charity. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, when, when he was canonized, there was some some dispute about how to classify him. You know, is he a martyr? Was he killed uh, out of hatred for the faith? Um, and the first answer was, no, it was heroic charity for others. He, he died for another. No greater love does any man have than to lay his life down for his friend. Well, I'm not even sure this guy was a friend of Colby's, you know, yeah. but he laid his life down for him. Uh, John Paul II said, well, he was both. I'm going to rule he's a martyr because um, the, the Nazi movement was out of hatred for the faith in a real way. Even, yeah. you know, even though it, it victimized Jews, it was it was going after really the Christian heritage, which is Judaic, which is Semitic, you know. And, and so, you know, he is both a martyr for Christ and, and a man of, of heroic charity dying for another. Uh, that's, I think, the way we ought to interpret it. We've been talking about St. Maximilian Kolbe with Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, and we've got DRItaly.com linked at sunrisemorningshow.com in the show notes. Doc, thank you so much. Great being with you. It was great to have you. St. Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 35 minutes past the hour. 
you listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com. What does the church say about angels? The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines angels as spiritual, personal, and immortal creatures with intelligence and free will, who glorify God without ceasing, and who serve God as messengers of His saving plan. Because angels have free will, we also have Satan, who chose to reject God and His plan. When we hear of angels, most of us probably think of our guardian angels, whose role is to watch over us and guide us to good thoughts, words, and actions, and to preserve us from evil. The word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, meaning messenger. Scripture tells us of many times when God sent an angel, such as the time when an angel was sent to hold back the hand of Abraham, or to bring his message to Mary, or give a warning to Joseph, or to minister to Jesus. The doctrine of angels is part of the church's tradition. Since the 17th century, the church has celebrated a feast honoring them in October throughout the Universal Church. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 328 through 336. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Patty Armstrong, who's written a piece for the National Catholic Register that addresses a topic that uh, we in the Catholic Church tend to revisit every year, end of August, beginning of September, because that's when the Feast of Saints Monica and Augustine takes place. And their story is one of a mom who prayed for a wayward child. Patty Armstrong's written about that for the Register. Patty, good morning. Good morning, Matt. And uh, I'm glad you wrote this. Ten lessons that you've learned about dealing with wayward children. Uh, first of all, what sparked you to write this? An acquaintance in the Catholic media had written to me and said, please pray for one of my children. And he was heartbroken, used the word heartbroken, that the one thing that they tried so hard was to make sure that none of their children would ever leave the faith. And now that it happened, he wanted advice from me on what he should do. So that's what sparked this um, idea. I have uh, 10 kids, and uh, not all had actually have stayed Catholic, and so I wanted to let him know that, and I said, you know what, stay tuned, I'm going to write about this. So that's what uh, sparked it. Well, you, you wrote about 10 lessons. I don't know if you've learned one for each kid, but I would imagine that you know <laughs> each kid comes with its own personality, uh, his or her own interests, passions, disinterests, I guess you could say. So what are maybe just two or three of these lessons that you've learned that you reflected on? One is humility, because um, I know so many people whose children are raised, and even though we knew it wasn't going to be easy, we didn't know in some ways, I don't want to scare people, like, oh, it's so hard, um, but 
handing down the faith is something that you can't control. So in that way, it is hard, especially when you're willing to do whatever it takes. And if God tells us to do one more thing, yeah, we're going to do it. And then you still can't control everything. So you really learn humility that um, you can't control everything and you have to turn everything over to God. That's one of them. Um, Another one is, I think it's wrong to think, if only I had been better. If only I had done this. Because I suppose there's always one more thing we could have done. Um, But the, the idea is, once again, you can't put it all on your shoulders that if you had done one more thing or if you'd done something differently, that that would have changed the outcome. If I had just commandeered my child's free will, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you can't do that That's sort of thing. That's the bottom line, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, Patty, in my day job, I work for the Coming Home Network with Marcus Grodi, and everybody knows us because we talk to converts, but we also talk to people who come back to their Catholic faith after a long time away. And if there's one thing I know about their stories, it's kind of like that, that I guess it's that people can come from any sort of parenting background. Just because you're an excellent faithful parent doesn't mean all your kids will stay in the practice of the faith. Just because you're a terrible parent doesn't mean all your kids will leave um, because of that mystery of free will. Exactly, and I used that example later in the article that I actually know some priests. I know uh, one priest who has eight brothers and sisters, and none of them are Catholic, and he's a very inspirational speaker, and um, and he's, he's also an exorcist, and I, and I just thought, what? How could this be? Because you think, surely he would have those magic words that could open their mind and change everything. And I know several other priests. I know priests whose parents didn't even go to church. Um, And so you think, wait a minute, what's going on here? But when you think about it, what about all those people praying for conversions Um, and all those cloistered nuns praying for the church? That there's a certain randomness of God's grace, Um, not not that some people are getting cheated, but that maybe there's some people are coming from families where they're not even really trying, but the grace of God often can open their minds and hearts. And we have that same opportunity to pray for our kids, too. It's not like God's not being fair, but we just have to trust. And, and speaking of St. Augustine, you know, I used to think, I don't really like that story of, of St. Monica. Why did it take her so long? She was a saint. And if it took her, depending on when you start counting, some people say 30 years, some people say 17, but it took a long time. And I used to think, okay, why couldn't she just, the woman's a saint, why couldn't she just have prayed for a year or two? But our pastor at the time, Father Kramer, gave a homily one feast of St. Augustine, and he said, you know, he lived in the 5th century, I believe it was, and um, all those years, more than 1,500 years later, his books are still in the bookstores. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is huge. I was thinking, how could all her prayers take so long? But in reality, how could one person's prayers accomplish so much that his conversion affected us through 1,500 years? So anyways, instead of thinking it was so small, it really was so big. Well, our perspective of the size of things in the spiritual realm is often kind of distorted, (laughs) Patty. um, I don't know how well you've realized that. I've certainly realized that over the years. Um, Finally, I want to key in on point 10, which I think is so important, and that is don't compare your family to other people's families. That's huge. It is, and it's so tempting because we look around and we go, whoa, look at their family. They must have done everything right. And and we have to also be careful to say when when we're 
working hard at passing on the faith and we're having good results, we have to be careful not to go, wow, look at our family. <laughs> you know, um, We're doing it right and oh, too bad about that family. Instead, we just have to come as we are, be humble, and give our family over to God. And we've already had one, um, one child return to the faith. And so, you know, just take it as it comes, keep praying, be humble, and trust in God. Well, in your case, that's at least a 10% return so far with results still to come in. So that's pretty good. Right. And they all haven't left. So, you know, it's right. not complete, complete failure there. All right. Well, Patty Armstrong, we got your article for the National Catholic Register on Wayward Children. Link at sunrisemorningshow.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Matt. God bless your day. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have traveled to nearly every corner of the world. Founded by St. Daniel Comboni, we are an international Catholic organization dedicated to ministering the world's poorest and most abandoned people. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at ComboniMissionaries.org. That is ComboniMissionaries.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H at sacredheartradio.com. The EWTN home video highlight for August is St. Rose of Lima. Her extraordinary life of prayer, penance, and service gave hope to many and was an inspiration to all. Encounter the beauty of her unwavering devotion, the astounding miracles, and the incredible power of one woman's faith to bring countless souls to Christ. Order your DVD at EWTNRC.com 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, or call 1-800-854-6316. Welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Dr. Scott Hahn. His book, Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. Good morning, Dr. Hahn. Good morning, and it's good to be with you again. It is good to have you back. And I want to talk a little bit about the history of cremation. You've touched on it in previous conversations, but I mean... You were saying it was a pagan practice to burn dead bodies. The advent of Christianity basically obliterated the practice for a long time. So how did it come back in vogue, if you will? Well, let me divide this up into two parts. The first part is the anti-Catholic part, and this goes back to the 1700s. In the second half of the 18th century, around the time of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries had declared all-out war on the Catholic faith. Uh, They had desecrated the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and I won't go into all of the other things, but they also discovered that one of the most effective ways to de-evangelize the Catholic population was to subvert their faith in the resurrection through cremation. 
and not just allowing it, but kind of universalizing it, mandating it. And this wasn't just the French philosophes and revolutionaries. This was the Freemasons, this was the Bolsheviks, the atheists, the communists. So by the 1800s, you have a full-fledged movement underfoot. And by the middle of the 19th century, this has been recognized worldwide by the Catholic Church as a kind of conspiracy. You know, I know some people like to reduce everything down to a Masonic conspiracy, as I point out in the book, but this is one that even agnostic historians who have no sympathy for the Catholic Church recognize as a Masonic conspiracy, as well as communist, socialist, and so on. And so in the 1860s and 70s, in a very strenuous way, the Catholic Church condemned cremation and at the same time excommunicated people do for, for doing it because the only reason you would do it is to kind of join a common cause with these people who are anti-Catholic, secularists, as it were, that new devangelization that was occurring. And so the second part of this occurs, you know, around the 1960s, where Vatican II is happening, and there's an openness to kind of proclaiming the gospel to a secular world to kind of re-Christianize it. And so there is a concession that was made back in 1963, uh, after the first session of Vatican II, where Pope Paul VI issued a document that allowed cremation, but endorsed, approved, and recommended the sacred burial practices that represent the Catholic custom of our tradition. And so this was a concession. And by the 1970s, it had caught on, unfortunately. Uh, it became something around 5% of Catholics. Now it's over 50%. And Catholics don't even have a clue as to what would be wrong. What do you mean the church permits it? The church approves it. No, the church never did and never will approve it because it isn't appropriate given what we know about the mystery of the resurrection of Christ's body and our bodies too. And so, again, I do not want to put people on guilt trips. I just want to show that the fullness of the gospel, when it's proclaimed and received and understood, will lead people to say, well, no wonder they never treated the body that way when it came to burial. It's a way of expressing our belief in the resurrection of Christ and us, but it's also a way of transmitting that faith to the next generation. Because as I point out in the book, more is caught than taught. Words only go so far. Actions speak louder than words, and the actions of the Christians in this culture of death known as pagan Rome contributed to the conversion of that empire. And likewise, I think it will contribute to it again. Dr. Hahn, what would you say to people listening right now for how they should consider this in their, their own lives, with their own loved ones, with their own bodies, because we're all going to die someday? Yeah, I mean... My dad wanted to be cremated. And I said, can you just extend a line of credit and let me explain why? And so afterwards, he reluctantly conceded, okay, I won't be. My mom said, thank you. At the point, she wasn't even sure she believed in the resurrection of her body or mine, as I point out in the opening of the book. But there was a sense of like, there's a whole lot more going on with our bodies than we realize. They're not just disposable cartons. And so what happened to my mom is what happens to a lot of people when they grow in their understanding of how God uses matter to save our spirits, but he also uses that matter to bring his grace, his power, his life to our bodies. You know, I have a whole chapter that focuses on what it will be like when we get our resurrected bodies back. And that's the chapter, when you read it, you put it down and say, 
Well, that's too good to be true, unless mm-hmm. it is, because our bodies aren't just going to be facsimiles of what we had. Our bodies are going to be like I use the analogy of the acorn becoming an oak tree. It will be recognizably the same body. It will be male or female. If we lost an arm or a leg or an eye, it'll be back again. But when you look at the four properties of the resurrected bodies that we derive from the scriptures, you can see like, seriously, we can look forward to that. The first property is impassibility because our bodies won't be capable of suffering or dying, obviously, but they can't grow hungry or exhausted either. But even more than that, there is this other property that is called subtlety because we're always weighed down by our bodies. Our souls want to pull an all-nighter and finish the paper or the chapter. We can't. We're too tired or too hungry. We'll no longer. And we're, we're going to see that our bodies are not weighing our souls down. Our souls are capable of transporting our bodies so that if I want to go to... Uh, DC, I don't just have to, you know, get a flight. I can just think and I'm going to move my body effortlessly with a kind of subtlety that is like almost unthinkable. And then this next attribute, agility, means that the weakest saint in heaven with the least glorified body will be stronger, more agile than the greatest Olympic athlete in all of history. And then finally, clarity is the fourth of the properties. And what it means is we're going to know each other. We're going to be able to communicate with our loved ones. I'm going to be able to look at somebody I barely know and see them more clearly than I could see my own spouse in this life. We're going to be able to enter into a communion of love, the likes of which would make the happiest family vacation seem like misery or a garbage dump in comparison. And again, this is not exaggeration. This is not religious rhetoric. These are not like our Catholic talking points. These are the precious gems that we call the mystery of faith, the gospel, the pearl of great price. I mean, when it comes down to it, God values our bodies, doesn't he? He loves us as we are. And so he made us not just to be souls that are in bodies, he made us to be embodied souls. That's what it means to be a human person. And the creator isn't someone who's different than the redeemer. And so when he redeems the creation that has fallen, he doesn't just restore it to the status quo ante to the way it was before. He takes it to a greater place than we could have imagined. He takes it to a higher place than it would have been if it hadn't fallen. He manifests not only his power, but his wisdom, his goodness, and his love, so that in the end you will see what scholars and theologians call a theodicy. This is why he permitted evil. It wasn't because he was too weak to overcome it. It's because it fit into a plan whereby he would achieve a greater good by allowing us to misuse our freedom, then to show us the freedom of his love can write straight with crooked lines. It can bring about from Good Friday, the greatest crime we ever committed against the Almighty just also happens to be the single greatest deed for the salvation of the human race that God ever did for humanity. He was redeeming his executioners while they were torturing him. It's almost unthinkable. I don't wonder why the world doesn't believe. I wonder why in the world I believe. And if I can believe this, Lord, you can get through to anybody. So let's get to work. Let's get to work. And so finally, Dr. Hahn, I mean, do you think this could be another opportunity for evangelization? You you said in a previous segment that that the early church transformed society in part because of their treatment of the dead. Could our treatment of the dead today be another opportunity for evangelization? 
Yeah, again, actions speak louder than words, and not just spoken words, but written words. Obviously, I don't devalue books, or I wouldn't write them. <laughs> but I am convinced that what we don't need are just more and more documents and committees and commissions and synods to discuss this and to kind of recycle the same words over and over again, even if we can improve the rhetoric. The point is that the way we treat the dead is going to do more than all of the documents that I might write in all of the other committees as well. And so I do believe there's a certain urgency. This isn't the highest hill or the most important battle to die on, but it's a piece of a puzzle. And I think when we look back and we realize what God did in the ancient church through the Christians, through their heroic witness to a pagan culture, you can see that God often chooses to do more with less. I mean, no committee would say, well, the way we treat bodies you know, at death will be an effective way of transforming this culture of death. I don't think that making it anybody's top 10. But I think it is a big part of what the new evangelization will will do because when we do, we're going to see that God isn't saying, well, you know, I'm going to wait until you understand everything and then you can begin doing it. No, obedience is what leads to understanding. When we obey the mysteries of faith, we'll stand back in awe and say, wow, you did all of that because we simply did this. We were faithful in all of the small things so that God could really be faithful in doing the big things that only God can do. The book, again, is called Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body from Emmaus Road Publishing. And you can find it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much. You are so welcome, Annie. What a joy. It was a real joy to have you. Thank you so much again, Dr. Hahn. That'll do it for this special Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Be sure to go to our website, sonrisemorningshow.com, and you can check out our archives through the SoundCloud link. Again, sonrisemorningshow.com. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this hour with a prayer of self-offering to the Trinity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh my God, in order that I may be a living act of perfect love, I offer myself as a whole burnt offering to your tender love. Consume me continually, letting my soul overflow with the floods of infinite tenderness which are found in you, so that I may become a martyr of your love. Let this martyrdom make me ready to appear before you and at last cause me to expire. Let my soul cast itself without delay into the everlasting arms of your merciful love. O my beloved, with every beat of my heart, I desire to renew this offering an infinite number of times until that day when the shadows shall vanish and I shall be able to retell my love in an eternal face-to-face with you. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. 
I'm Anna Mitchell, and along with Matt Swaim, we will be taking you to the archives today to replay some of our favorite interviews of the past. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and creator of the Doctors of the Church series on EWTN. Good morning, Doc. Good morning. Great to be with you. It's great to have you. On August 14th, 1480, 800 men were martyred by Ottoman soldiers in the town of Otranto, Italy. Now, why were these Turks in the area in the first place? Well, it had been a a pledge of the Ottoman Turks, especially the Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror, after he captured Constantinople in 1453, that he was going to then invade the West, that he was going to invade Europe. And his pledge also was to conquer Italy and to stable his horses in St. Peter's Basilica and convert it to a mosque. So the invasion of Italy, which is little known today, took place in 1480, and the city of Otranto for some weeks stood as the only thing between the Ottoman invasion and the rest of the Italian peninsula. Wow. So tell us the story of this invasion of Otranto. How did it play out? Well, the the Turks uh, sent uh, a fleet of about 90 ships or so, plus 18,000 men, which was a, a huge army at the time. And it was supposed to land a little farther south. And instead, because of a storm, they landed at Otranto. And you can imagine the terror of the poor inhabitants of the city of Otranto when they looked up and saw an entire Ottoman fleet descending on them. The garrison of the Aragonese, uh, the kingdom of Aragon, fled quite somewhat understandably and abandoned the city. But the, the town's people decided they were going to resist the Ottoman invasion. And that's what they did for weeks. Uh, withstanding uh, a vicious siege by the Ottoman Turks. And only when they ran out of uh, food and the walls were breached uh, did the city finally fall. And what happened at the Otranto Cathedral? Yeah, well, the the Turks, uh, and in fairness, it was uh, classic for the way wars were fought, uh, sacked the city and marched immediately uh, to the cathedral where they found the archbishop and uh, the last of the the nobleman who was in charge of the city. The archbishop was uh, in full vestments, uh, holding a crucifix when they stormed into the church. He was uh, beheaded, and all of the priests around him were immediately put to death. The church then was desecrated. And then the Turks had to uh, make the decision of what they were going to do with the survivors, the, the women and children, were sent off uh, on ships to be slaves in the Ottoman Empire. And the surviving men, 800 or so, uh, were marched out of the city onto a nearby hill and given one chance. They would either convert to Islam or be executed. And to a man, every one of them uh, chose to die rather than betray the faith. Wow. And so then they were killed too? One by one, uh, they were executed. And there are a lot of uh, amazing, beautiful stories about uh, what happened that day uh, on what was obviously a horrendous day of of death. But uh, one of the most remarkable was that uh, among the Turkish executioners, uh, you can imagine how long this took and how horrible this would have been, sat watching the heroism of these men of Otranto. And his name, by tradition, is Barlabai. 
And he was so moved that he converted himself and joined the others in death as mm. a martyr for Christ. Wow, so was it 801 then that died, or did he make it 800? Approximately 813, to be precise. Okay. But yes, he's, he's counted among the martyrs of Otranto today. Can you tell us about the first man who was martyred on that hill? Yeah, his name was Antonio Primaldo, and we don't know that much about him, other than that he stood up right at the, the time when the choice was given to them, and he shouted to his companions that uh, just as Christ died for us, we have to be willing to die for him. And that's why if you look at some of the official listings for the canonization and the beatification, it is Antonio Primaldo and Companions, because mm. he's one of the very, very few people of whose name we actually have preserved down to today. Now, there's a tradition uh, that when he was uh, beheaded, his body remained standing, and no matter what they tried to do, they couldn't knock it down. And he remained standing, sort of as a, a vigilant sentry, a watcher over the rest of his friends, uh, until the last of the executions was done, and then the body fell. Wow. Well, Dr. Bunsen, I mean, in addition to being incredible witnesses to the faith here, how did Otranto and the martyrs of Otranto essentially save Rome? <laughs> yes. That's uh, one of the things that uh, is a lesson for us today, that because of their heroism, because the city was willing to stand, uh, it bought time for the various nobles and, and states of Italy. Remember, we have to remember that Italy was sort of a checkerboard of different states at the right. time, under the Pope to organize an army uh, that marched from uh, several different directions, but marched toward Otranto. And as a result of the heroism of those people, it bought precious time for that army to be gathered. And the Turks were eventually defeated. The city of Otranto was recaptured. And as it happens, uh, Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror died almost immediately after. And no other Ottoman invasion could be launched because of the political chaos that soon followed and because of the crushing defeat of the Ottoman Turks in Italy that resulted from uh, this long delay that held up uh, the Turkish advance. And so St. Peter's did not fall to the same fate that the, the Hagia Sophia fell to. That's exactly right. And, and in a way, I think that, as I was saying, that that's the lesson for us today. Wow. Well, Dr. Bunsen, why are these martyrs, do you think, not so well known today? Uh, well, the story itself is, is a tremendous one, but uh, so often, as is the case, uh, we don't hear about a lot of the martyrs simply because uh, other things fill up our days. Uh, the other thing, too, is that um, events soon overwhelmed uh, Europe, so that the story of the martyrs is sort of replaced by the, the great heroism at the Battle of Lepanto. Mm. So, in a way, you could say that uh, the Battle of uh, Otranto became a footnote to the wider war against the Ottomans. Mm. And uh, we should remember the martyrs of Otranto, and we should remember the Battle of Lepanto. I mean, they were only canonized just fairly recently, correct? Yeah, uh, by Pope Francis, I think, in 2015, hmm. uh, who marked their great statement of faith, their willingness to die for the faith. And uh, it remains, I think, the, one of the largest canonizations ever hmm. uh, in, in one day. It's an incredible story of, of heroism and courage and faith. Martyrs of Otranto, pray for us. Pray for us. 
We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen. You can find EWTN News linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Bunsen, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. And you can find all of our guests that you hear on the Sunrise Morning Show on a daily basis linked in our show notes at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's S-O-N, risemorningshow.com. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. It's not as scary as I thought it was. <laughs> it's a much more warm and open place, and God really is about love. It's not about the rules and the things that I remember as a young child. It really is about the love that God has for each one of us that's so um, deep and wonderful. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org. the Sunrise Morning Show, and Father Hezekiah Carnazzo will continue our Salvation History series today. He's from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Annie. It's a blessing to be with you and your listeners today. Blessing to have you back. Okay, so we left off talking about the priests of Israel, the Levites, and how they came to become the priests of Israel. And so that leaves us in basically the, the book of Leviticus, correct? Uh, yes, Annie. You know, th- this is a, this is the most critical moment, the turning point in the entire Old Testament. Besides the fall of Adam and Eve, okay, this will be seen as almost like a second fall. Um, and so it's important that your listeners get this right and understand the place of the Levitical priesthood in the life of Israel. Just by way of review, we're in the a book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus, God's people, of course, exit out of Egypt, right? And it's on. It's in chapter 12 of Exodus, we learn that, that they begin a new life. It's the a new year, the first month of the year, the 14th day that Passover happens, and they leave Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 19, it says it took them three months uh, from leaving Egypt, camping at, at the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, finally coming to Mount Sinai on the third new moon. So after basically three months of time, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, 
And for sake of time, we can say he's up there a long time. The people of God begin to ask uh, what happened to him, and then they fall into the sin of the golden calf in chapter 32 of Exodus. And it's there that we have to remember that the golden calf was one of the gods, or the calf god was one of the the gods of Egypt. And the people begin, they take Egypt in their hearts with them, out of Egypt, and that's the the great tragedy. And it's there at the base of Mount Sinai that the firstborn enter into this this worship of the firstborn. It was one of the it was the cult of the firstborn, and because of that, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, they see that the that the people of God who were meant to lead the people in their priestly prayer, namely the firstborn of of Israel, end up leading the people into false worship. And it's there in chapter thirty-two that Moses' family, the Levites, come to him, and he says, Today you have ordained yourself for the, for the service of the Lord, in other words, for worship. And it's, you're right, it's there that the book of Leviticus fits into the story. It's so important, because the book of Leviticus is very difficult to read. And I'm going to tell you something, and I, I know maybe some of your listeners are going to say, I can't believe a priest just said this, but if you're not a Levite, then what are you doing reading the book of Leviticus? The book of Leviticus <laughs> is all those... <laughs> is all those little things about how you're to worship God, and why? Because when, when I have my children and they disobey, what do I do? I explain the law more clearly, and that's exactly what the book of Leviticus is. So I'm going to tell your listeners that you're reading through salvation history. You can go ahead and skip over the book of Leviticus as long as you know that it fits in here, right here at this moment, in Exodus chapter 32 at the sin of the golden calf. Very interesting. Now, okay, so... Back into the the story then, so that we don't get caught up in Leviticus. The Israelites are on their way to this promised land. Tell us about the promised land. Well, we know it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and it's going to take them how long, Any 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. 40 years. Everybody knows it takes 40 years. The question is, why does it take them 40 years? Uh, we, we, we pick up the story at the end of the book of Exodus, and we read that Moses finishes setting up the tabernacle where God is going to meet with his people, um, and the cloud of glory descended upon the, the tent of meeting. So those that have their Bibles out can look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we pick up that, that very moment in the book of Numbers in chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and, and in fact, in chapter 9, verse 15, it says those very words, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. This is important because when you're, you're, your listeners are reading their Bible, they can go from Exodus 40 all the way to Numbers chapter 9 and 10, and it's there in chapter 10 that we find out in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle of, of testimony, and the people of Israel set out to the wilderness of Sinai. So, so look, they left uh, Egypt in the first year, on the first month, on the 14th day, and now we've entered into the second year in the second month. So basically, they've, they've been now gone from Egypt for a full year, and now they set out on their journey to the promised land, and that journey is going to, as you said, is going to take 40 years. Why, Annie? If, if, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Why 40 years, Father? <laughs> in the book of, of Deuteronomy, 
in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 1, it says that it is an 11-day journey. 11 days from Mount Sinai, what's called there in Deuteronomy, Mount Horeb, to the Promised Land. 11 days. But those 11 days will take 40 years. Why? They do make that journey, actually, in 11 days. And in Numbers chapter 13, we find out the story of their investigation of the Holy Land. The, uh, Moses sends the leaders of the 12 tribes, 12 men, into the Promised Land to check it out. What's this land look like, and what's it going to be when we enter in? Are we going to have a war on our hands? They go in there, and they take the first fruits of the land, of the best fruits of the harvest, and they bring back these massive grapes, pomegranates, figs, and they come bearing all this fruit to the people. And the people say, well, let's go, let's go and take the land. In chapter 13 of Numbers, in chapter 14, but what happens? The, 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 the spies who go into the land give an evil report to the people. They come back having spent 40 days investigating that land which flows with milk and honey. 40 days they spy out the land. But when they come back, they say, we can't take the land. After we've crossed, we've gone through the Exodus, we left Egypt, and now we're here at the Promised Land. The people will kill us if we go in, and God will not protect us. And suddenly, we have our next massive crisis in Numbers chapter 14. The people say, let's turn back and go back to Egypt. But two men stand up, Caleb and Joshua, two of the leaders of the tribes of the people. Only two out of the twelve stand up and say, we are with the Lord, the Lord is with us. We will certainly take this land because this land is ours as an inheritance, as we talked about before. But there's a crisis, and the people are divided. And suddenly they say, we will not trust the Lord, and we will not go into this land. It would be better if we had died in Egypt. And we can read those words there in Numbers chapter 14. And when they said that, they called down the condemnation upon themselves, and the Lord gave them the very thing that they asked for. For the 40 days that they spent spying out the land, they will spend 40 years for every day a year until all of those faithless men die in the desert. And only Caleb and Joshua and the entire next generation of people who have faith in the Lord, who have gone through their, their Lent, if you will, their 40 years in the desert, will then enter into the Promised Land. Well, on that happy note, Father, we'll leave it there. And in the meantime, uh, where can listeners find your six-hour series on salvation history? I encourage your listeners to go to instituteofcatholicculture.org, instituteofcatholicculture.org, over 800 hours of free Catholic education in the faith, uh, scripture study, philosophy, theology for the best teachers that we have available to us, all free of charge at instituteofcatholicculture.org. It's there that they can go to our library and look up swords and serpents. And they're going to have a six-hour introduction to salvation history. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com, L-E-A-H, at sacredheartradio.com. 
This is Father Rob Jack with the Heart of St. Paul. It is amazing that the more things change, the more they remain the same. In many parishes, there are disputes about the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Some want this and others want that. The great act of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which is at its center to effect unity in the church, instead brings about division. St. Paul faced the same problem with the Corinthians. He was not pleased with how the church was celebrating the Lord's Supper. He writes, When you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Paul warns the Corinthians that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. Paul's concern is also our concern. When we come to Mass, we need to be mentally and spiritually prepared. Let us prepare our souls by prayer and confession and our bodies by the fast. In that way, we do not bring judgment upon ourselves, but grace. This is what the heart of Paul teaches us. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Sarah Christmeyer. She's online at comeintotheword.com, her book, Becoming Women of the Word. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Annie. How are you today? I am doing just fine, thank you, and happy to be talking to you. Um, Today we're going to be discussing Leah, the first wife of Jacob, who loved her sister Rachel, (laughs) which is an interesting introduction to her story. Can you give us an overview of this story? Yeah, it's um, actually from the vantage point of Jacob, I guess it's pretty good. Um, But (laughs) from Leah and Rachel's, it's a a story of of sibling rivalry in the extreme. Here we have Leah, the older one. All we know about what she looks like is that her eyes are weak, Hmm. and Rachel is this stunning beauty. And so even though she's the younger, she's the one that gets all the attention and so on. And so Jacob comes up to visit them, and really, Jacob's the younger son of Abraham. Um, He falls hard for Rachel. And um, make a long story short, her father tricks him, and on his wedding night gives him Leah. So um, apart from asking how that might have happened, uh, in the morning he's quite upset and um, barters another seven years of work in order to get Rachel, too. So he ends up with these two sisters as his wives, and Rachel gets all the love but has no children, and Leah gets all the children and has no love. So we have this story set up where these two women both want what they can't have, Mm -hmm. and how are they going to handle it? Let's talk a little bit more about that. So Genesis tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and that he hated Leah. Really? He hated her? Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and in English it is harsh because we use hate in pretty much one way. But there's a apparently there's a Hebrew expression when you say that one is loved and the other is hated. Uh, it it has a little bit of a different meaning. Um, Robert Alter, who's a, one of my favorite Jewish uh, translators, he says that it's a legal term for an unfavored co-wife, uh, which still sounds pretty nasty. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but there's a, in ordinary usage, it seems to set up a comparison. So if you say that one is loved, the other is hated, you're saying one's chosen over the other. So not necessarily hate poured out at the one, but you've chosen the other. Although if you're in a marriage with someone who chose somebody else, I think that's you that you might well feel like that uh, is hate, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I would. But as you said, Leah was, unlike Rachel, able to have children and bore quite a few sons for Jacob. What what was the significance of the names that she gave those sons? Yeah, so these sons, you know, back then, that's what you wanted out of a marriage. You, know, you wanted to give your husband's son, and she has son after son. And the Bible's interesting in that it gives us not only their names, but why she named each boy what she did. And in it, you can see kind of the state of her heart. So first of all, she has a boy called Reuben, which means see a son, and she says, surely now Jacob will love me. And then the next one uh, is called Simeon, and the Lord has heard that she's hated, so it's like this son finally is going to get that love that I don't have. And then number three, Levi, means joined, and she says, now my husband will be joined to me. So you feel this incredible longing that she has, and almost like she doesn't care so much about the kids except for what they can get for her. She wants to get her husband's love. Mm -hmm. But there's a big change with number four. Something has changed inside of her, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And she calls him Judah, which means praise. And that is a significant name for biblical history, for the history of salvation. Yeah, because Judah, you know, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he comes from that line, and he comes from a tribe that was named because their mother decided to praise the Lord. It's beautiful. It is really beautiful. I mean, what do you think, just kind of trying to take a glimpse into the soul of Leah there, what lesson did she learn? Well, I think that after number three, you know, she stopped putting all her hope of happiness on a man who wasn't going to give it to her, you know, just practically speaking. But the beauty is that she started to praise God instead and to be grateful for what she did have. And you can actually see it as she continues to have more sons. She calls them good fortune and happy am I and God gave me a good dowry. You know, so her situation doesn't change but she changes, and that praise was all the key. What lesson do you think that we can take away from the life of Leah? Well, I think it's so easy to think that one person, uh, you know, or a particular job or an amount of money or a situation can satisfy us. And even if, even if it's a good thing and we do get it, it never, never will satisfy us, because ultimately only God can. And we'll, we'll see more of that with Rachel. But I think Leah teaches us the value of praise and thanksgiving, not, not just because God demands it, but because what it will do for us and for our hearts. And at the, at the start of the story, we see that Leah's eyes are weak, and it's like she can't even see the blessings that she does have. But at the end, her eyes are focused on God, and the, the fact that she was praising Him and being grateful and thankful gave her this inner strength and clarity that she needed. And I think it also gained her the joy and the happiness that she so much longed for. So for us, you know, if, if you have a hole in your heart, Stop trying to fill it by yourself. You know, offer it up to God more like an empty nest, mm. something that he can fill with the love that he wants to give to you. Some beautiful lessons there from Sarah Chris Meyer. The book is called Becoming Women of the Word, How to Answer God's Call with Purpose and Joy. 
Let's talk about the little sister, Rachel. She was the pretty one whom Jacob actually loved. And, you know, it's an interesting position she was in, wasn't it? Being the younger one when the older one wasn't married yet. So the uh, interesting thing I learned in um, studying for this this book is that the rabbis teach that Rachel really had compassion for her big sister, and she told her some signs or helped prepare her so that when she went into the tent, she could fool Jacob and make him think that it was Rachel, and it worked. <laughs> he did marry uh, Rachel, too, obviously, um, but that's how they're, they both ended up married to the same man. Wow, it's so interesting. Now, all Leah wanted, at least initially, was to feel loved by her husband. Rachel had that love that Leah coveted, right? So was that enough for Rachel? It doesn't seem so. He absolutely adored her. But what we see is that as Leah starts having children and Rachel can't have children, she becomes consumed with envy and nothing is going to satisfy her except having a child. And it doesn't seem like uh, his love was enough for her either. And how did Rachel's infertility affect her relationship with Jacob and her relationship with Leah? It damaged both of those relationships. I mean, we watch as she blames Jacob to the point of getting him really angry with her. Um, She gets manipulative, uh, so she not only kind of ruins that relationship with Jacob, with her her sister, um, she holds Jacob away from her, won't let her sleep with him, finally, like, sells a night (laughs) with the husband to Leah for some um, mandrakes that she wanted, but she really drives a wedge, you know, that, that her her desire to have children and her envy for Leah drives a wedge between all of those relationships. And, of course, Leah is the one that's having all of these children. How did her envy of those children of Jacob and Leah actually affect her relationship with God as well? I mean, the Bible doesn't outright say, but you can kind of read between the lines that she has a real lack of trust and um, in God and doesn't really believe in His goodness, and no blessing that she receives is enough for her. And we see a little bit later on in the story how she steals her father's household gods and lies to him. And you're left wondering, at least I was, you know, Rachel, who is your God? What is your God? Is it fertility? Or have you seen anything of the God of Jacob? Um, We don't know, but it it seems to me that that envy and so on got in in the way of the relationship with God as well. And yet God is so generous, isn't he? He does eventually give her a son of her own, and he's a pretty significant guy. Tell us about him. (laughs) So she has a son who we know is Joseph, who um, is so important when the children of Israel are down in Egypt. And Joseph is actually one of the finest men in the Old Testament. You know, he's a figure of Christ. He reconciles all those brothers, all those sons of Leah, you know, to their father. He has a strong faith. He he knows that God brings good out of bad. And it makes me wonder, what was her motherly influence on him? You know, did she actually learn something in the end? I don't know, but she had an awesome son. Yeah, she really did. And can you tell us about her death as well, the legacy and the legacy that she would have in Jewish tradition after that? She does go on to have another son, but she dies in childbirth, and she actually calls him son of my sorrow. And you see how poor Rachel has spent a lifetime weeping for her children. And um, years later, you know, it's their children who become the children of Israel. And many, many generations later, they are marched off into exile 
right by the place where Rachel was buried, by the road there. She didn't get buried in the family tomb. And later on, the rabbis say that Jacob buried her there on purpose, knowing that they would need her prayers, and they credit her prayers with bringing the children of Israel back to the land later on. So they remember that, and they also remember her for her kindness to Leah. So she actually has, has quite a beautiful remembrance. Now, what do you think we learn from the story of Rachel? Well, when I look at Rachel, I see myself and a lot of people, we all have this hole inside of ourselves, this desire and longing that God put there on purpose so that it would direct us to God. But Rachel shows us what happens when instead of being grateful for what we have and allowing God to fill us with His love, we just envy others for the things that we don't have, and we fill up with bitterness. And that we see in her how toxic that can get. And so I think, you know, if you ache with emptiness, God really wants to fill that void. He wants to fill it with His peace and His joy and His love. And so instead of trying to stuff it full ourselves or to just envy others, if we can hold that emptiness up to Him, kind of like an empty nest, Mm -hmm. and ask Him to fill it, that He will. We've been talking to Sarah Chris Meyer, some beautiful thoughts from Becoming Women of the Word, How to Answer God's Call with Purpose and Joy. You can find it linked along with her website at sonrisemorningshow.com. Sarah, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you so much, Annie, for having me on your show. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour. Tis the season for iced tea. If you're looking for some unique flavors to enjoy, the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming have a number of options, including lemongrass mint, ginger orange, and blossoming jasmine. Go check them out through our link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. And when you make a purchase, we earn a commission. While you're at our site, pick up a mug or etched travel mug, which are available in our online store. Get your mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee for tea at sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. There are people in the Bible whose names we never learn but their lives are perfect examples of faith. This is true for a young girl from Israel. She served in the household of a great general, a man named Naaman of Syria. We would never know of this girl at all, except for the fact that Naaman suffered from a skin disease. It was not so terrible that he could not fulfill his duties, to the king, but it was a terrible burden to bear nonetheless. Naaman tried every possible means for a cure, but could find none. And then one day, this young Hebrew girl in his household told him that there was a prophet in her homeland who could heal him. Naaman was not so proud that he could not listen to her wisdom, and he was cured. Like that young Hebrew girl, we never know what influence a good word from us can have on the lives of others. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. We've been going through his book, Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, and it was inevitable that at some point in the conversation, we were going to have to tackle C.S. Lewis 
and J.R.R. Tolkien together. And that's what we're doing today. Joseph Pierce, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Matt. You? Doing well. So just for a little background on my own situation, I took two separate classes on C.S. Lewis at Asbury College. One was C.S. Lewis in the Oxford Circle. It was a literature class. Um, and then the other one was a C.S. Lewis philosophy class. And it was in the philosophy class that we actually tackled what Lewis's first real kind of work was uh, for the public consumption, which is The Pilgrim's Regress. And I feel like it it's an overlooked work of his, but I wonder if you could tell a little bit about how that book is part of Lewis's own way of understanding his journey to faith. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Ashley, because you, you're quite correct. The Pilgrim's Regress is a neglected work of Lewis, an early one. Um, it's basically autobiographical. It's, it's a formal allegory uh, where the character of John is at one and the same time both uh, a figure of C.S. Lewis and his own journey, but also um, a, a, an everyman figure, so of all of us. And basically, you know, the, 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 the idea is that John need, has, is told by words of wisdom to stay to the path of virtue, but of course he wanders off in two directions. To the north is the, is, is, is the, is the path of rationalism, so reason without faith, and to the, to the south is, 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 is basically sort of emotion, feeling, irrationality. And he wanders in both directions, and, and, uh, you know, and then it, obviously that delays the journey where he's supposed to be getting. And eventually, he is received by Mother Kirk, Mother Church. Okay, so I'm glad you brought up that aspect of it, because when I was reading this in a Wesleyan Methodist tradition Bible college, I did not understand the Mother Kirk analogy. And knowing what C.S. Lewis eventually did and where he got stuck uh, with not becoming fully Catholic, yet he saw this idea that at the end of the day, your own brains, your own studies can only take you so far, and you kind of have to trust the Church. Yeah, exactly. Basically, reason reason will get you so far. Reason is, is very good, and it's, and it's uh, God-given. It's a gift. Um, but you can only go so far, and, and beyond that, we can only get further if God reveals himself to us, revelation. And at that point, you, you, you start talking about faith and not merely just reason. So it, within the work, the, the character of John um, basically has to strip, him, strip himself naked and, and, and take a leap of faith, or technically actually a dive of faith, you know, which, which signifies baptism at the command of Mother Kirk, Mother Church, Kirk being the uh, Scottish word for church. So, you know, that, that's basically what Lewis is telling us, that, that reason is necessary, but it only takes you so far. Beyond that, you do have to take God on his word. I feel like you're saying to us what Tolkien probably said to Lewis a thousand times in regard to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that, uh, that, that in that famous night talk um, uh, in, uh, in September 1931, that it was basically Tolkien that, that talked Lewis into an understanding of faith. Uh, it's Lewis, it's Tolkien, if you like, that took Lewis, but beyond that obstacle, that, uh, you know, of basically reason taking you thus far and no further. Well, it was, it was Tolkien that basically gave him that sort of, um, that understanding of philosophy and theology, which allowed him to make that leap of faith. Because it was within a week or two of that conversation that, that Lewis said in a private letter that he definitely had started to believe in the Christian God. And the Pilgrim's Regress was written about two years after that. So we do, I think, see the Tolkien of shadows, the shadow of Tolkien's influence on that work. Well, there is so much to be said uh, in a very short segment about the relationship between Lewis and Tolkien, but can you talk a little bit about what was the 
uh, scenario there when they would meet with the Inklings. Who all else was involved with that to kind of round out the picture of the minds that were sort of all in one space doing similar things? Yeah, the Inklings were the most important literary group of the 20th century, without doubt, if you consider the, the great works of literature by Tolkien and Lewis in particular that came from it. So basically, it, it, it grew out of uh, a group that Tolkien established called the Colbiter, which was reading the old Norse classics. When that group round up and finished, Lewis was enjoying it so much, he formed his own little circle of friends, which became known as the Inklings. And Tolkien and Lewis were at the center of that. Lewis's brother, Warney, was also part of that. Over the years, um, various other people in my book, uh, my biography of Roy Campbell, I mentioned how Roy Campbell was also an occasional member. I mean, there wasn't, wasn't signed up membership. To be a member basically was to be invited to attend. If you were invited to attend and you attended an Inklings meeting, you were uh, ipso facto a member of the Inklings. Owen Barfield would be another one, of course, who was part of that circle. And uh, Charles Williams, who... Uh, of course, I, yes. I don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to recommend, if somebody asks me my personal opinion of one Inkling to read besides Lewis and Tolkien, Williams is my guy. Well, yeah, I, I actually find him a little bit weird, truth be told. Um, Maybe that's why know, he's my guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to weirdness. Um, uh, I mean, I love that hideous strength, for instance, which might be considered Lewis's weirdest work. Um, yeah, so I, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 a complete criticism, but I just find him a little bit on the wacky side, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I think Owen Barfield has some interesting things to say philosophically as well, and he had an influence on Tolkien uh, and Lewis. So, yeah, all of these figures are, are, are important. But, of course, Tolkien and Lewis are the giants of the group, and they're the ones that really did so much to uh, evangelize the culture through the power of storytelling. All right, so if we want to dive into the things that you've written and get a crash course in sort of the story behind the stories uh, regarding Lewis and Tolkien, what works of yours would you recommend to our listeners? Well, I mean, I've written a bit on both. Uh, with, with Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church is very good for a, a, an understanding of Lewis's position vis-a-vis -vis the Church. And then my book, um, be, um, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia, uh, is, um, uh, is, is good for understanding the Chronicles of Narnia. I'd like to write a book on Lewis's adult fiction, um, maybe one day. And then for Tolkien, I've written a, a biography, Tolkien, Man and Myth, which has some literary criticism in it. And then Frodo's Journey, Discovering the Hidden Meaning of the Lord of the Rings, and uh, Bilbo's journey, discovering the hidden meaning of the Hobbit. So quite a lot for people to choose from if they want to, want to delve and dive deeper into Tolkien and Lewis by reading some of the stuff that I've written. And I would say go pick up Pilgrim's Regress by uh, C.S. Lewis. I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I'd gotten halfway through college and didn't even realize it existed and was just taken by it. Of course, I was also a kid who, as a uh, you know, young evangelical Protestant, had read uh, Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan, and there are so many resonances uh, in that book with, you know, naming people after virtues or vices and, and so much more. In the meantime, Joseph, if our listeners want to connect with you, how do they do so? Well, the easiest way is to go to my personal website, which is jpierce.co, uh, and maybe check out my inner sanctum there, which is lot, lots of podcasts being posted each week and lots of exciting stuff happening. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, and we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. God bless, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. 
and services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, Resuscitation of the Rosary, a Fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. Two of the most beloved devotions in the church are the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Grow in your devotion to the two hearts with the free Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart prayer ebook from EWTN at EWTN.com slash Catholicism slash Seasons and Feast Days. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Sebastian Walsh. He's author of the book from Catholic Answers Press, Secrets from Heaven, Hidden Treasures of Faith in the Parables and Conversations of Jesus. Father, welcome back. Thanks, Sandy. It's good to be here. It is good to have you. And we are continuing our conversation on the conversation of Jesus with the (laughs) Samaritan woman at the well. And last time we were talking about lessons that we can learn about conversion from their inter- mm-hmm. in, their interaction. And so now let's move on to an even deeper spiritual or allegorical meaning in this conversation. And I want to get into each of the points more deeply, but as an overview, Father, what is this encounter ultimately pointing us to? Yeah, when you look at it, Remember, the, um, the details in the scripture is where you find the, the deepest meaning, huh? when you pay attention to the details. And what you notice is that um, Jesus has come from a very long way, and he's thirsty. It specifically says that it was about noon when this happened. huh? And not only that, it says that his disciples have left. They've gone into the town to get food, and... So Jesus is left there alone, but not exactly because there was at least one disciple who recorded this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that must have been John. So John was actually still there, and there was this woman. So notice all of those details. If you look at those details, you say, hey, those are parallel to what happened to Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, because at the end of the Gospel of John, we find that at noon, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, I thirst, and the beloved disciple is there, and Mary, the woman whom he calls woman, right, Hmm. is there. And so all the details line up, right, with you've got more than three parallels there, with the scene of the crucifixion. And so 
that shows that um, there's something really beautiful here about this conversation with the woman at the well. In fact, the whole thing is this, as if it were a conversation between Christ and his church as he hangs upon the cross. It's just so beautiful. I mean, this is something that's kind of typical of John, is it not? Yes, you can find this over and over again. You find it, um, we'll find out later when we look at the, uh, the uh, man born blind, uh, the woman caught in adultery. What you find is that all the events point to other realities, both at the sacramental level and also at the, um, the level of heavenly realities in the next life, huh? what are called the allegorical sense and the anagogical sense by the, um, the patristic tradition. So let's go through some of these details a little more deeply. So tell us more about how far Jesus had come and, and this time that he encounters the woman. Yeah. So there's a great passage in um, Proverbs 25. In fact, it's easy to remember, 25:25. It says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is the gospel from a far country. And... Um, and I couldn't help but think about this moment. Um, Jesus has come not only from Nazareth to Samaria, but he's actually come farther than that. He's actually come from heaven to earth. And just as um, he's thirsting for our love, he also wants to give us the gospel. He wants to satisfy our thirst. And that's why the, the proverb says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is the gospel from a far country, right? And, um, and when he comes, just like it says in, in St. John's gospel about Jesus, when he comes to the well, he says he was, he was weary from his journey. And that's really true because when Jesus assumed our human nature, he did not assume a glorified human nature. He assumed a human nature, as St. Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, not meaning that Jesus sinned in our flesh, but it means he had the weaknesses that came with our fallen state. He wasn't even like Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve experienced no pain or suffering in their bodies before their fall. So Jesus came, and even though he had no sin, he experienced our human nature in its weakened condition. So he experienced hunger and thirst and, and pain and uh, the pain of labor and things like that. Huh? Mm. So those are some details there that are really um, beautiful and they all show up in St. John's Gospel by, by means of that allegorical sense. Yeah, and I want to talk, too, about the, the significance of those things surrounding them, because I thought that this, this really opened my eyes, Father. I mean, the water jug, the fact that John was, was likely there since he's able to record the conversation, but you don't, you don't see him, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so speak more about the significance of all of that. First of all... When you look at that water jug, what does that represent? Just think about that. What does that water pot represent? Notice John um, includes the detail that when she went back into the town to evangelize her own townspeople, by the way, which included her five ex-husbands. I mm -hmm. want to point that out. Mm -hmm. When she went back, that was a courageous act to go back into the town, a known public sinner, and to say, the Messiah has come. But that's what she did. But it says that she left her water pot behind, her water jug behind. Huh? Um, at the beginning, she's coming to draw water. At the end, she leaves it behind as if she says, I don't need this anymore. Huh? And that's, I'm telling about our conversion because that water pot signifies our 
clinging to carnal goods, to the goods of this earth, to the goods that satisfy our flesh. And um, there's a there's a passage in Jeremiah. Um, the passage says this: My people have done two evils; they have forsaken me, the fountain of life giving water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water. And that's to signify the twofold um, evil that we do when we sin. First of all, we turn away from God, who's a fountain of living water. That is, he's a source of all happiness. And on the other hand, we dig for ourselves cisterns. That is, we try to put happiness in creatures, but creatures are like broken cisterns or they're like water pots. They only have a limited amount of happiness they can hold, and eventually it runs out. And um, and so the fact that she leaves the water pot behind is basically her saying, I no longer need to find happiness in creatures. I don't need another man. I don't need some other thing, money, money or, or praise or anything like that. I've got Jesus. I've got the source. So that's one um, really important detail. Then another thing is that Jesus, when he's talking to the woman, he says, he's talking about the water he's going to give to her, huh? He's going to, so that she won't thirst ever. And that's an implicit reference to the Eucharist, because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, John tells us that his side was open and out poured blood and water. And that became our drink, our spiritual nourishment. And so by seeing that this conversation with the woman was in fact, prefiguring Jesus on the cross, we also see that part of her conversion really had to do with Jesus offering her the Eucharist so that she might never thirst spiritually again. It's incredible. And, you know, we always should be looking at these stories in light of our own lives. So what kind of lessons can we glean from this for ourselves? Yeah, I I think that... Um, you know, first of all, we should follow for ourselves the lessons that Jesus gave us for the conversion of the Samaritan woman. There was a total of seven lessons or stages of her conversion, and we should follow those stages of conversion in the same order that she did. So that's one lesson we can learn. Um, but the next thing is to recognize where are we in this conversation, right? Are we already, are we still clinging to our water pot? Right? Have we come to recognize Jesus as someone more important, but not as our Savior yet? Are we struggling to accept the teachings of Jesus that we can't understand yet? Or do we have a strong faith where we say, even if I don't understand, Lord, I believe? Do I want to have a conversation with Jesus in prayer, but I don't yet want to bring others to him? Right? And, um, and finally, when I read this passage, am I seeing the conversation between my soul and Jesus crucified? I think all of those are lessons that we can learn about reading this beautiful passage of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And you can read about them more deeply in Father Sebastian's book, Secrets from Heaven, Hidden Treasures of Faith in the Parables and Conversations of Jesus. It's from Catholic Answers Press. Father, really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. God bless you and your ministry. That'll do it for this edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.